Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Good morning. My name is JT. Welcome to Crossroads Bible Church. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, uh, my family and I have attended Crossroads now for about 14 years. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about Crossroads is when the men gather together. We've uh, had several men's retreats, and those are a real joy. Uh, There's a lot of fun to be had at those men's retreats as well, ping pong competitions and whatnot. I know a lot of you guys out there are also cyclists, and so there are a few of us cyclists that get together on Saturday mornings, sometimes Sunday mornings before church, and we go ride together. We ride through Flower Mound early before the traffic gets heavy. We're the CBC uh, riders. I like to think of us as the holy rollers. (laughs) But I have to tell you, one of my favorite things as a man here at CBC is the men's ski trip. And you know, with COVID and everything that's been going on, that was squashed this last year. Um, I've got big hopes for 2022, early 2022, for the men's ski trip. So if you guys are interested in the ski trip, I would encourage you, as soon as you get home, or why not take out your phone now, send an email to charlie.ridenauer at crossroadsbible.org, and just put hashtag CBC Copper Mountain 2022. I, pre- I, I promise you, he will appreciate the email. Okay. So this morning, I get the good pleasure of finishing our study uh, in Romans chapter 8. And this chapter is really something very dynamic, right? It's a, it's a powerful chapter. Uh, this passage that we're going to look at today, uh, Paul really uses as the crescendo to, to finish out, to round out Romans chapter 8. Um, 
in this crescendo, Paul uses seven key questions that we should probably be asking ourselves, right? But he's asking these questions to drive home a very important point. What is that point? The point is this. God loves you, and he is for you. God loves you, and he is for you. So we'll dive in here in just a second. Why don't you bow your heads with me? I'll I'll, uh, kick us off with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to come together and to uh, worship you, to gather and to study your word. Uh, We invite your spirit here today. Um, Father, uh, I ask that you would uh, give me the words to share your message with uh, the church today and prepare the hearts and the ears and the eyes to see your work uh, in, in this world. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm approaching 50, and I've noticed in the last few years that my, my memory of events that were just five or ten years ago seem to be a little fuzzier. Not all of them, but some of them are a little fuzzier than I'd like for them to be. Now, I blame the environment, right? I think it's because I'm, I'm erasing memories to remember things for work that are probably pretty useless. And, and we're, you know, with, with our phones and all of the data and the information that we're overloaded with every day, Uh, I think it's just more difficult to remember things. But the interesting thing is that I have memories that are still crystal clear from when I was just three or four or five years old. And one of my favorite memories is of a time when I was about four or five, my parents took me to the zoo. And uh, one of the things that was really cool at the time (laughs) was that I didn't have a little brother or sister yet, so you know what that means. I was spoiled at the zoo that day with my parents. So my parents take me to the zoo, and we did everything, right? It was the Fort Worth Zoo. We rode the train. I had ice cream that day. They bought me one of these giant lollipops that has all of the colors. You guys probably know which one I'm talking about. It doesn't taste very good, by the way. I remember that, too. I remember exactly what I was wearing that day at the zoo. My mom had made a pair of denim shorts that had pinstripes in them. And and one of the colors of the pinstripe was mustard yellow. I kid you not. I had a white t-shirt on, and my mother, I'm sorry, my grandmother knitted a a mustard-colored cardigan. What goes better with a mustard-colored cardigan, denim shorts, than a cowboy hat? Because I had that on too, right? It was the perfect day. Great day with my parents. Matter of fact... Honestly, this event with my parents, this one trip to the zoo, was the trip that all other trips would be measured by. And it's the trip that I actually measure some of our family trips with our kids by. Well, that doesn't even speak about the exhibits, right? The exhibits are great at the zoo, too. Uh, My favorite, the monkeys, because the monkeys are smart, and they're putting on a show for us, right? They're chasing each other around the monkey habitat, and they're tripping one another, and they get mad, and they throw stuff at one another, and then they look at us like, ah, did you see me do that? Um, As we work our way around the boundary of the zoo, and uh, eventually you get around to the larger animals in the zoo, like the rhinoceros and the elephants and the more dangerous animals. Well, the more dangerous the animal, the, the taller the barrier between you and the animal. And oftentimes there's a gully or a ditch or a culvert or maybe a moat that separates you from the animal depending on how dangerous the animal is. 
So we work our way around to the rhinoceros. My dad picks me up because I can't see over the wall. I'm only four or five years old. Picks me up and holds me in both arms. And we look at the rhinoceros. Then we get to the giraffe. I don't think giraffes are dangerous, but they've got a really tall wall. Makes sense, right? So dad picks me up, puts me on his shoulders so I can see the giraffe. Then we get to some other animal. I want to say it was a big cat. I don't remember. But there's a moat. There's a big wall. And my dad must have been tired of holding me. So he stepped up, set me on the, the, the railing, and he wrapped both of his arms around me. Again, I don't know. I think it was a lion. But all I can focus on is the moat below me. I'm four or five years old. We're at the zoo. That's where all the animals are. I'm certain crocodiles are in this moat below me, right? Maybe some piranha. I don't know. But I can't see the, an the animal in front of us because I'm looking down. And I'm scared to death. My dad's going to drop me. Of course, my dad is never going to drop me. He's got both of his arms around me. He's holding me as tight as he can, right? Um, There's no way he was going let to me, let me go. I know a lot of you are parents. Do you remember when you had your first child? Do you remember the thought that entered your head, right? There was a light bulb that went off. I remember it distinctly. It was this. My goodness, this must be how much my mom and dad love me because I love this, this child so much, right? When you're a child, for the kids that are in the, the audience, when you're a child growing up, you think that the love you have for your parents is equal to the love that they have for you. That's not the case. As the kids get older, you know, you drag them out to Target and you're doing your grocery shopping and they find the, the toy aisle and they grab that Scooby-Doo doll that they want so bad and they bring it to you and they say, Mom, can I have the Scooby-Doo doll? No, you can't have the Scooby-Doo doll. Then do you remember the look that they give you when they can't have the Scooby-Doo doll? You let them down, right? I thought we were friends. I thought you loved me, Mom. Eh. As they get older, I've got a big boy over here. As they get older, they, they share with you their intentions. Hey, I'm going to do this, Dad. I'm going to do this, Mom. And even though you know it's not a great idea, what do you do? You might allow them, you, you, you weigh the risk, but you may allow them to go ahead and proceed knowing that they're probably going to fail or that they're going to learn a, a greater lesson. And after that lesson is learned, what happens? They look at us and they say, why did you let me do that? Right? It's because we love them. Our love, the love between us and God is, is similar to that, right? Um, sometimes things happen in our lives that we don't understand and it's not because God doesn't love us. He allows us. He gives us a little bit of slack to do some things. Um, and so we'll look at that here in a little more depth in just a minute. Uh, matter of fact, why don't we jump in? If you've got your Bibles with you today, let's turn to Romans 8, verse 31. I'm reading from the inspired version. That's the NASB. You can read from any version. I'm only joking. Okay, so uh, Paul starts out with this. Seven questions, remember... To, to let us know that God loves us and God is for us. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what things, JT? I wasn't here last week and I haven't had a chance to replay Nick's message. Well, there are a lot of things that Paul says in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, but the three important things that I want you guys to know for our conversation today, one is... Um, essentially that um, we're no longer slaves to sin through the power of the Spirit. We have a choice, okay? That's one. Number two, remember Charlie told us that we've been adopted 
as sons and daughters of God. Adoption is permanent. We're not fostered as sons and daughters of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God, and that's eternal in this instance, right? And then number three, this is one that I'm really excited about, that's the redemption of our bodies and of all creation. That's something that we're looking forward to. So what then shall we say to these things? We say, hallelujah, bring it on. That's what I say. If God is for us, who is against us? In the third and fourth grade, my best friend was Chris Butcher. And Chris Butcher and I spent all of our time together when we weren't in school. Uh, Weekends, we spent the night at one another's houses. Inevitably, you spend that much time with anybody, and what happens? You get in tiffs and arguments, right? The argument always went the same direction. My mom cooks better than your mom does, Chris. Chris would say, well, my dad's stronger than your dad, right? This is a little different than that, but I'll tell you this, right? If, if, we, if we look at this another way, right, if God is for us, who is against us? How about because God is for us, who can stand against us, right? The God of angel armies, he's on my side. Verse 32, he who did not spare, <clears throat> he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So my wife Amy recently took a new job at Baylor University uh, Medical Center down in Dallas. And we're a family that likes to fully depreciate our vehicles. And so we've had our cars for a little while. That's a nice way for me saying that. We thought it might be a good idea to go ahead and trade Amy's car in, get her a new car for the commute that she has. We live in Lantana the long commute that she has back and forth to work every day. I don't know if you guys have noticed, right? But because of COVID and because of the freeze that we've recently had, it seems that everything is in short supply right now. Um, If you want Indian hawthorns to replace in your garden, you're probably going to pay twice as much for those Indian hawthorns. You might not get the nice big one that you want. You may get a little bush. If you're like me and you want a new bicycle, guess what? If you order that bicycle today, you may not get it until 2022. The same goes with cars. Uh, We went into the car dealership. We knew exactly what we wanted. Uh, We talked to our sales guy and said, this is the make and model, and these are the bells and whistles. And he said, no problem. We don't have it here in the dealership, but we can get it for you. It's going to take five or six weeks. Well, that was about two months ago. So a couple of weeks ago, our sales guy calls us up and he says, hey, your car's in. Come and get it. And Amy and I were like, all right, we're excited. Let's go see the car. So we get in, and after a few minutes of talking with uh, our, our sales guy, he said, are you ready to see your new car? I thought, yeah, we're ready to see the new car. So he walked us back to a, a little conference room that had a few chairs and a table, and Amy and I looked at each other. We knew what was about to happen, Right? supply and demand conversation. Sorry, the price of your car has gone up. That's not what happened. Are you guys, have you heard of this thing, this commercial on TV, the Sewell experience? Let me tell you, that's for real. It's pretty cool. So we walk into the room. We think that this guy's about to hit us with the, hey, you're going to pay a surplus for this car. And he grabs this magic handle on the wall, slides it back, There's the new car with a bow on top of it. And let me tell you, let me just caveat, we didn't buy like the fancy car at the dealership. This is just one of their regular cars, right? 
but they didn't uh, stop at just the car. They were already giving us the best thing. That was the car that we came to buy. They, they rounded out the experience, right? They went all the way. Not a paid advertisement for Sewell, but I'm a big fan at this point. Um, I'll say this. God does something similar, right? He's given us the best thing that he has. He's given us his son for our salvation. Why would he stop there? If he's given, given the most important, the most precious thing, why wouldn't he give us everything else that we need to conform us to the likeness of his son? Now, if I were to stop here, I might be tempted to think that God's going to give me all things, right? Like that new bicycle that I really want. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about giving us everything that we need to conform us to the likeness of his son. Okay, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Well, Paul kind of half answers the question for us. If God is the one that justifies, we know that God isn't the one that brings the charge. John answers the question for us in Revelation 12.10. John says this. He says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So if Satan's the accuser, but God is the one that justifies, then that must mean Satan comes to God. He says, hey, have you seen your guy, JT? Did you see what he did yesterday? But God has justified me. What, is, what does that big word justified mean? That means I've been made right with God, or I've been acquitted of all guilt. So when God looks at me, he says, yeah, I see my guy, JT. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't apply here. Right? Your accusations don't warrant any merit on my guy, JT. That's what that means. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So if Satan is the accuser, can Satan also condemn? No. There's only one person with the power to condemn, and that is God. But God doesn't condemn, does he? If we think back, right, to the very beginning of our study in Romans 8, what does Romans 8.1 say? I think we've got a slide for that. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So while God is the one with the power to condemn, he does not condemn those of us that through faith have Christ Jesus. This is really this next verse to me, is where the rubber meets the road for this, um, this exclamation point that Paul puts down in Romans. And remember, what he's trying to tell us is that God loves us and he is for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? These are all things that Paul faced during his ministry, right? And we face things that are very similar to these. I remember four years ago, um, my oldest son, who's getting ready to go to uh, Texas Tech this fall, he was getting ready to start high school. And in the spring of, it must have been 2017, he tried out for the high school golf team, and he made it. And we were really excited for him. He wanted to get ready for uh, the golf season, so we signed him up for a series of tournaments through the North Texas Junior PGA. They play on all the lo local courses around town. 
Well, on one warm August morning, he had a tournament at Lake Park Golf Course. And uh, as he was warming up at Lake Park, he's chipping and he's putting. And uh, he came over to his mom and, and I, and he said, hey, my, my stomach hurts a little bit, mom and dad. And being the caring, loving, good mom and dad that we are, we submitted our nomination for 2017 Parent of the Year and said, suck it up, buttercup. You probably just have nerves. So he did, did what we told him to. He sucked it up. He finished his warm-up. He went to the first tee, hit his ball, uh, did, did really well. About two or three holes later, we, we didn't uh, crowd him. We weren't with him. So we watched from afar, and we would come up next to Grant. And uh, <laughs> his mom would ask him if he wanted a, a snack. You know, she had frozen grapes and the such, of course. And um, he didn't want anything to eat. Uh, his stomach still hurt. He'd barely drink anything, as a matter of fact. And uh, we encouraged him, keep going, you're doing great. Stay with it. Just make it through nine holes and let's reevaluate. So he made it to the end of nine holes, and he said, I don't think I can do this. But we encouraged him, you can do this. You've made it this far, your stomach hurts, but you're okay. Now, it's worth noting, right? This, uh, we're probably late morning at this point, early August, it's hot outside. The boy's not drinking as much as he should, and we haven't given him a push cart. He's carrying his bag because we're trying to get him ready for high school golf. He needs to be able to carry his bag, right? So he does the right thing. He finishes the round. He plays pretty well, and we offer to take him to get him something to eat afterwards because we know that his stomach's been upset, and he says that he doesn't want anything to eat. So we take him home, and he falls asleep. Uh, he needed some rest, and he slept all afternoon, and it was almost dinner time when we woke Grant up and said, Hey, buddy, are you, how are you feeling? And he felt really, really horrible. He was feeling nauseous at the time, and he went into the restroom. So his mom went to check on him and take his temperature, and he was running a really high fever. And so <laughs> finally, we were like, Hey, maybe we should take him to the doctor, right? We took him to the emergency room, and they run a battery of tests on him and scans, and they say, You know what? Your son is in the process of passing a kidney stone, we think. So he's 14 years old. <laughs> he was playing golf all day on a hot summer day, right, in August, carrying his bag. He was actually passing two kidney stones. He passed both of those later that night. They gave him some medicine to help take the pain away and maybe to open things up. I don't know what the medicine did, but they said, you've got to take your son to see a urologist as soon as you can. So the next day, we took him to Children's Medical Center, saw a urologist there. They did more tests. They did more scans. And they said, okay, here it is. Uh, your son was born with a narrowed ureter. That means that his kidney doesn't drain properly. Because his kidney doesn't drain properly, it builds up sediment. And when you build up sediment, that sediment can crystallize. And the crystallization of the sediment means that your son has numbering in the teens number of kidney stones, some of them so large, he'll never pass them. They've got to be removed by surgery. You know, it's at a time like that you think, what's going on? Why my kid? You know, why can't that be me? You look at God, you're like, I thought... <laughs> I thought I was one of your favorites. What's going on here? You know, that's our knee-jerk reaction. 
And it may just be a knee-jerk reaction. But the reality is the event skews our view of God, a loving God, right? We allow the, the event to get in the way and skew our view of God. Have you ever had one of your children so sick that they've needed surgery or been uh, admitted to the hospital for some amount of time? I mean, it's a horrible thing, right? Have you lost a loved one to cancer? Have you maybe lost your job and wondered how you were going to make ends meet? All of these things have happened to our family, some of them multiple times. Paul says that we're in good company. He gives us an example. And this example of King David actually comes out of uh, Psalm 44. In order to get a better look at it, I think we get Psalm 44, verse 22 here, but I expanded it to Psalm 44, 22 through 25. It says this, But for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Wake yourself up. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and oppression? For our souls have sunk down into the dust. Our bodies cling to the earth. My question for you today is this. Are you allowing the events that take place in your life, the crisis that take place in your life, to skew your view of God? That is... Are you looking at God through a lens of the, the event or the crisis that's taking place in your life? Because if you are, you're going to have a skewed view of God, a loving God, right? That's not how it's supposed to be. We know that Paul's telling us here that God loves us and he's for us, but we also know that we live in a broken world, and in this broken world, until it's repaired, we're going to get sick, our loved ones are going to pass away. Bad things are going to happen. Why does it make a difference how we view God if we look at him through the lens of these events that happen in our life? Well, because our view of God affects our relationship with God. right? If, if we're looking at God and we think God doesn't care, or maybe not, right? maybe God is just indifferent. Hey, God, I know there's a lot happening over in Israel right now, but why aren't you taking care of my problem? Because God's busy, right? If we're looking at God in that sense, that affects our relationship. And if it affects our relationship, we're less likely to reach out to God. We're less likely to communicate with him. We're less likely to draw near to him. But what if, what if we changed and, and turned that kind of on its side, right? What if instead of looking at God through the lens of our circumstance, what if we looked at our circumstance through the lens of God's love. That's what Paul's saying here, right? That would be freeing. That would change everything. Instead of feeling like we've been abandoned and that the world is against us, we would know that God loves us and that he's for us. Instead of being so focused on the crisis of the moment, right, whatever that event is, and there's always going to be a crisis, Instead of being focused on that crisis, we're free to take a step back and focus on God and see how he operates through that crisis, to see how he works in our lives and to see how he works in the lives of the others that are around us and who, the people that love us. In this next verse, Paul says this, 
But in all these things, we're overwhelmingly conquer, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What does it mean to overwhelmingly conquer, right? Well, know this, we're already victors. We've already won the battle. Regardless of our view of God, whether it's in light of our circumstance or circumstance aside, we, we already have salvation in Christ. We're not going to lose that, right? So we're already victors there. But to overwhelmingly conquer means to have the right perspective as we're looking at these problems that come up in life, these crises that we, we come across day by day, right? That means that overwhelmingly conquering means that we arrive to the battle, we arrive to the crisis already having won, knowing that victory is in hand. What does it look like if we live this out well? What does it look like when our knee-jerk reaction isn't, hey God, did you forget about me? Instead it's, hey God, this is a big deal. I'm eager to see you work. What does that look like? Well, I've got a story. I've got a good friend who uh, happens to be an avid cyclist. He's a healthy guy. That's the reason I tell you that. Uh, he could, on any given Saturday or Sunday, if I called him up, he would be ready to go uh, for a bike ride, ride 80, 100 miles on his bicycle. So a healthy guy. His wife was out of town, my friend. Uh, we'll call him Mike. And uh, his wife's out of town. Mike came down with a head cold. Well, the head cold moved down into his chest. So he had a chest cold. He was coughing, uh, pressure on his chest, had a hard time breathing. And he went to bed that night and uh, couldn't really fall asleep because he couldn't really breathe. And so he decided to go to the doctor to get some medicine to help. He probably just needed a mucinex, but who knows, right? At that time of night, the only doctor that was open was the ER. So he goes to the ER, and the nurse comes in and says, yes, sir, how can I help you? And he said, well, I've got a lot of pressure on my chest, and I'm having a hard time breathing. Well, what did the nurse do? She said, I'll be right back. Let me get a doctor. She came back with a pill. While I get the doctor, put this under your tongue. Well, she gave him a, a nitroglycerin pill, right? She thought he was having a heart attack. He had a chest cold. So a couple minutes later, my friend passed out, slid off the table, hit his head, split it wide open. He came to, blood everywhere, doctors and nurses all around him. He's in the right spot, though, right? He's in the ER. So... They stitch him up. They're still not certain whether or not he has, has a cardiac issue or not. So they check him into, into the hospital. They put him in the ICU. We're going to keep you for a couple of days. We're going to run a couple of tests on you. And my friend at this point is like, God, what is going on here? This, this is crazy. I've got a chest cold. I should have just taken the Mucinex, right? But I trust you. I know you've got this. Everything's in your hands. So... Mike's checked into the hospital. Friends and family began to come visit Mike. And one of his friends named Eric came. And uh, as Eric's walking down the hallway to Mike's ICU room, he peers in the door next door to uh, Mike, and he sees a long time an old friend that he used to know. And he doesn't stop in yet. He goes and visits with Mike. And then uh, he tells Mike about his friend next door and asks Mike if he knows who's next door. Mike says, no, of course. Then he leaves and goes and talks with the gentleman. Uh, it was a, a, a guy, I guess, that he worked with some years ago, and they hadn't stayed in close touch. But now he was sick enough that he's in the ICU. And so um, Eric goes in and talks to his friend. 
and uh, ends up sharing his testimony with him and then had uh, the opportunity to share Christ with him to the point that the guy came to saving faith in Christ right there that day. Then he later told Mike, who told me the story, and now I'm sharing with you guys to the glory of God. The next day, that, that friend of Eric's passed away. He went to be with the Lord. The next day, right, that same day that he went to be with the Lord, Mike was checked out of the hospital, given some meds for his chest cold. He's never had a cardiac issue, right? The point is this. How does our relationship change with God when we have the opportunity, when we take the opportunity to look at him, look at our circumstances through the lens of his love? When we say, God, I don't know why this is happening, but I completely trust you. I know that you love me and you are for me. That's what we're called to do. That's what Paul is saying here. So if you'll bow your heads with me, I'll uh, close us in prayer and we'll get back to some worship. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for giving us the best thing. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the promise that you will continue to work on us until we're complete in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the assurance that you give us here in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from your love. Father, um, we thank you that you love us and that you're for us. Today, uh, we ask that you um, would, would be with the nation of Israel. I ask that your protection would be on them and that you would bring peace to the Middle East uh, here quickly. Um, thank you for your love and your blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.